we did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network, Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks. This is who killed Teresa. This is a podcast where life isn't fair, justice is blind and dysfunctional. And some cops aren't smart and dedicated, like on TV. Today we'll mostly be discussing a case from 1971, the Montreal murder of Lucy Baldouin. But before we do, Mike, Kids asked me an interesting question the other day. They said, Dad, do you remember the 60s? And I said, yes. I, you know, I, and I, I said yes, and I actually do mean yes. Uh, and they said, so you, you remember the civil rights and church bombings? And I think, no, 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 no. That, that's not, I'm Canadian. That, that was not part of my awareness. When, when you talk about the 60s, but I certainly understand civil unrest. Um, I remember, I said to them, there were bombs going off in the street, the National Guard, and the, you know, the country was, or the, the province of Quebec was federalized with the October crisis, the FLQ crisis. So that's what, that's what I remember. Um, the... Um, you know, prime, the FLQ went through a series of waves, like waves one through six of bombings that went on all through the 60s. And I would have started becoming aware in what is now referred to as the sixth uh, sixth wave right around 1969 uh, and the bombing of the Montreal Stock Exchange. Um, wh- what they were essentially doing for a decade is... is is bombing English establishments uh, primarily in Montreal. You know, the post office, um, the seats of business power that were English, things like that. In, in fact, um, I only recently learned they they bombed the Black Watch armory. The the armory I was at in November to receive this, this uh, medal, medal from the Canadian Senate from a Quebecer. 
pretty interesting. Um, uh, but um, yeah, I mean, FLQ, uh, Federation, Federation uh, Liberation du Québec, um, uh, you know, the whole thing called culminated in 1970 uh, with that's referred to as the October crisis, the kidnapping of two diplomats, um, uh, James Cross and Pierre Laporte, uh, which ultimately uh, ended with uh, Laporte's body being found at the Saint-Hubert airport in the trunk of a car. We could spend a lot of you know, time on this. Um, in one day, I will do a podcast trying to summarize what it felt like to be part of the FLQ crisis, the October crisis, but that's that's not for today. So anything to do with um, uh, the 60s in the States, um, I, I wasn't aware of that until much, much later. I was aware of 60s music, um, but I didn't know anything about Martin Luther King or, uh, you know, Bobby Kennedy or a- any of that. That was not that was not part of m- my realm my world and if it made the quebec newspapers it was you know it was buried in the international section it was not going to be on the front page um saying that you know i'm i i never um make reference to this but my my listening audience is primarily american american and then hovering after that neck and neck or um, UK, Canada, Australia. Um, but but I should acknowledge that it is an American uh, audience primarily that I'm talking to and to be grateful and thankful uh, for that. Um, so, Lucy Baudouin. So, this murder occurs... Uh, th- one year following the October crisis, actually, that's that's the setting for what happened to Lucy Baudouin. And um, what I'm going to do now to start is uh, I, I translated French to English, uh, an article from Allo Police uh, from October 1971. Um, and um, I did it in the style of that tabloid journal from the day and i'm just gonna i'm gonna read it relatively straight uh and and just keep in mind um, this is uh, lucy was a topless dancer and whatever we think of that in a 2019 framework understand in 1971 there was a completely different mind set that had all of the um, when we're talking about a sex trade worker, uh, all of the prejudices um, and notions of victim blaming that you can imagine. And so I, I'll read the article straight, which gives a good summary of the Lucy Baudouin affair, and um, then we'll go from there. <laughs> Danseur à gogo, victime de son métier, la police la retrouve nue et assassinée. 
par Michel Comte. Photopolis. 30 octobre 1971. Working as a go-go dancer in the clubs and cabarets is probably very interesting, financially speaking, for a student who wants money for a little luxury. All the more if you dance topless. 19-year-old Lucy Baudouin opted for this lifestyle to earn her living. Very pretty. A good figure. She turned the eyes of patrons at the Motel Saint-Hubert on the south shore of Montreal. Too much? Peut-être. It's an open secret that topless dancers often take advances from clients, whether they are wanted or not. Equally true that on occasion they might encounter undesirable men. Lucy Baudouin was not like other dancers. By day, she was a Cégep student in old Montreal. She operated in two very different worlds. In the clubs, she was vulnerable to encounter exploiters or powerful sexual maniacs. We don't have to tell anyone that topless dancers are very provocative by the nature of their dances and their nudity. Was Lucy a victim of her seductiveness? This theory is under consideration, that she was murdered by a sexual maniac who desired her. A little after the discovery of the body of the young girl, Investigators prepared to interrogate several of Lucy's friends. Fellow students, it is not impossible that the person responsible for her death was also a student. If that is not true, it also appears she was quite connected with a biker who has also been interrogated. Her booking agent, Paul Kulser, would find her appointments. Police want to know if the heads of this office had come to know the young girl in question and done business with her regularly. But they claim to not know much about it. She had recently gone to them for new photos, but the photographer has not had time to take new photographs of her as he does regularly for all of the artistes that work for the establishment. Lucy's double life has made the work for investigators doubly difficult. She disappears. Lucy Baudouin was not the sort of girl who would leave her parents' home. Her father is deceased without a good reason, even if her work was providing an attractive income. This is why she still lived with her mother at 5590 Boulevard Saint-Laurent in Montreal. It was on October 5th that she was reported missing when she did not come home since leaving the house 11 hours earlier in the morning.
Her photo was given to the media, along with a complete description. It was for another 11 days, the 16th, until the police were put on the case. That day, some children were playing around the Leo Roy Quarry next to 5675 Boulevard La Piniere in Brassard. They reported to police the first piece of evidence, a purse that they found at the place. The police determined that it belonged to Lucy. Divers were brought in to explore the nearby water. They discovered, floating on the water, a big, open, and inverted trunk containing a sheet. Sticking out was a black leather boot belonging to Lucy. At six o'clock last Friday, Assistant Director Paul Emile Blain of the Broussard Police and Detective Richard Arpin finally made the macabre discovery. The body of Lucy floating completely naked on the surface of the quarry lake. From the beginning of the investigation, all signs pointed to a murder. Mainly that the body was curled up, the neck was bent back, and the legs were also curled. It's believed that she was placed in the trunk, which would explain the positioning of the body, and then thrown into the lake. The autopsy that was performed at the beginning of the week confirmed what police had suspected, that Lucy's neck was broken. We also know that Lucy was sexually assaulted before being killed and that she was not shot or stabbed. Lucy Baudouin paid dearly. But why? For being attractive and revealing her body in public? For having relations with students that were a little shady? And that's it. That, that, that is standard writing for Allo police in, in the era. This sort of um, lurid, suggestive uh, language, um, a kind of sinner and saint mentality going on here that is typical of the, um, you know, both the, the Catholic influence in Quebec um, and and also the, you know, the rebelling of the influence that ultimately gets mixed up into this pot of something that finally says she got what was coming to her. So what happened next? Well, the Sûreté de Québec is brought in to assist the Brossard police in the investigation. And in December of 1971, uh, a guy named Henri Vincent was arrested for the October 5th strangulation murder of Lucie Baudouin. 
And he appeared in court on December 17th. Uh, and Vin- Vincent was a 22-year-old biker. He's was a.k.a. Le Saint, a.k.a. Les Bras. Um, and Vincent, he'd been on the run for several weeks before police uh, caught up with him in Thunder Bay, Ontario. So he's he was actually, he's accused of um, second-degree murder, of non-premeditated murder. I don't know exactly the circumstances for that, but uh, uh, police stated that Baudouin was was strangled uh, in in an apartment in the east end of Montreal at 6525 Papineau, not far from where she lived with her mother. So uh, conventionally, you would think because um, Saint Hubert is um, adjacent to Broussard, it's, it's also on the uh, the south shore that she w- might might have been murdered at the Saint Hubert uh, motel and then brought to the quarry. But um, we now know that that's not what happened. Is that she's uh, um, she's murdered close to her home, not close to the uh, Saint Hubert motel. Um, and in this. This uh, this case stays in the news for quite a while. Uh, later, police charge a 21-year-old uh, René Gilles uh, Vinette as an accomplice, uh, accomplice after the fact. And finally, in the in the spring of 1972, Judge Claude Bisson sentences uh, Henri Vincent to nine years in prison for the murder of Lucie Baudouin. So again, I want to I want to emphasize this played out in the papers for for quite some time. Um, the murder happens in October of uh, um, 1971, and it's in the news because she's missing, and then it's in the news in November, December because they're they're trying to find this guy uh, Henri Vincent, and you know they even in the paper they. They uh, they publish his his photo and say he they, they're looking they're looking for him. Um, trial begins in December and extends all the way to the next year. So we have um, you know approximately what are the period of six months six or seven months where this is um, very clearly in the public eye. You know it's not one of those cases that kind of goes by un, unnoticed, as, as many of them do. This played out for half a year, and every everyone knew about it. <laughs> but it doesn't end there. This, you know, this may be, this case may be starting to sound familiar to you, because I, I, I think I touched on it in, in a, an earlier podcast, but I only kind of gave it a passing glance. Um, and uh, it came up, uh last year um 47 years later uh Lucy Baudouin's sister Louise Baudouin is plunged back into this matter because of a blunder caused by and you can just you know who I'm going to say the Sarté du Québec that's right um there was an entire process with Henri Vincent and, you know, you and I may 
kind of go, well, he got off lightly with nine years, but, you know, nevertheless, there it is. But, oh, no, no, no. In, in March 2018, Louise Baudouin, the sister, is contacted by an investigator from the Sarté de Québec to announce that the murder of her sister is now going to be <laughs> treated as an unsolved case. Um, and uh, Louise says, uh, since that time, every second, every gesture, every minute, it comes back to me. I've been crying a lot every day since March 23rd. Um, police, they even make her sign a form to allow them to broadcast, to, to put a photo of Lucy and, uh, you know, a reminder, a summary of the unsolved crime on uh, the DSQ's website. And even though she said to them that she had informed the police that a suspect had been convicted in this case, the police, the Sarté de Québec, refused to listen. Lucy Bedouin says she doubted her memories, even though she attended court proceedings in this affair in 1971, in a December trial. Finally, on, on May 30th, the SQ removed the notice concerning uh, Lucy Baudouin from the cold case website. The, now, although the police, they, they admit the mistake and they say that in future things will be different, uh, it, it seems that before meeting Lucy Baudouin's sister to, to confront her with this, they they only did uh, what a newspaper referred to as summary checks. Now, I don't know what that is, but I do know that if you Google Lucy Baudouin, um, eventually, eventually um, you know, despite all the notices of the people named that currently on Facebook and social media, eventually you will come to a uh, banque... Uh, banque um, link to the historical record in La Presse or La Devoir, all of the newspapers of the day on this case. Um, and, and nevertheless, um, to this day, no one from the Sûreté de Québec has apologized to, to Louise Baudouin for this, this blunder that plunged her back into painful memories uh, for four months. We're going to stay with the theme of the sex trade worker uh, because it, it it doesn't get enough attention. Um, partly because with these types of cases, there's typically not a lot of information. Uh, the police don't want to cover them. The media doesn't. The, the, the family is often reluctant to speak up. Um, 
because of guilt and shame. There's um, certainly uh, somewhat more inf- information on the Lucy Baudouin case, although as you've heard uh, how um, productive and useful that information is, uh, well, is in the eyes of the beholder. Um, nevertheless, it's very easy for me to, to get in, in, involved um, with a case like Lucy uh, Baudouin, interested in it. Um, but it requires that um, you, you be specific, you get focused, and you get really, really in, intentional uh, about what you're doing. Um, and for me, it typically goes like this. Um, if I have geographic points... Um, that's where I start. So I start with where she, uh, she lived, um, you know, and where she was, she died, uh, on Papineau. And the first thing I noticed is it's very near where, uh, um, Denise Bazinet and, uh, Les Amblais lived. Uh, not that there's, there is no connection between those cases. Let me be, be quite clear about that and then I, I notice where you know where she worked uh, uh, in uh, today we would call it Longay um, but in St. Hubert Motel where she was found the quarry in Broussard and you know before you know it uh, after I do that Lucy Baudouin is in my head I want to read to you from an article uh, that appeared in um, uh, the Police Advocates Journal, uh, I think in 2012, some years ago. Um, It's the type of article that would never appear in the mainstream media, and you would never find it because until this moment, you weren't aware in Canada that there was something known as the Police Advocates Journal. Uh, it's written by a reporter who's now with the Gazette, uh, Montreal Gazette, Catherine Solium. I think I'm, I may not be pronouncing that right. If I'm not, apologies. But it's called The Sex Trade at the Root of Human Trafficking. Montreal. In a drab room above a shopping mall one recent morning, Detective Sergeant Dominique Monchamp has an unlikely request for his fellow Montreal police officers. Imagine you're a stripper. He's not trying to poke fun. Thirteen years ago, when Monchamp started on the vice squad, he too thought little of the girls and the women who chose to prostitute themselves for a quick buck and told cops like himself to fuck off on a regular basis. If they weren't obviously breaking the law, he too walked away. After all, these women are consenting adults, the argument goes. It's their choice. We're a free and liberal society. But now, Monchamp wants these cops, especially the men, to think about why these girls and women take their clothes off and turn tricks and why they are so damaged by it. He wants cops to think of the girls as victims, not criminals, and to put themselves in strippers' shoes. 
You work in a club, Monchamp begins, often a private booth. There you're groped and fondled for 10 or 15 a pop. The first woman who comes in is cute. She's nice and fun. You dance. She fondles you. It might not even be so bad. The second person is courteous and nice. Not so nice to look at. You wouldn't necessarily want to go out with her, but business is business. The third woman is ugly and drunk. The fourth woman is drunk too, but she is also disrespectful and laughs at you. She pinches your nipples and she starts pushing past you. The fifth one has paid her $10 and she puts a finger in your ass. She's not supposed to, but she does it real quick anyway, just for fun. It turns her on. And on it goes. Hour after hour. At the end of the night, you arrive home with your pile of tens and twenties. Your girlfriend looks at you and asks, Is that all you made? You're a fucking loser, she says. You'll have to work a double shift tomorrow to make up for it. At the end of this exercise, the officers in the room sit in stunned silence. Mauchamp's portrait of a dancer has shaken the toughest cops here, some of whom have undoubtedly frequented some of the strip clubs off-duty, all of whom now have a fresh perspective on sex in this city. It's not sexy. And it's not really about sex at all, Mauchamp says. It's about human trafficking. Right here in Montreal. Being made to work in strip clubs is the most basic form of sexual exploitation, he explains. And it's the daily reality for countless women in the city, who more often than not are also subject to violence and sexual assault, followed by post-traumatic shock. It's normal that these girls tell you to fuck off, that they have bizarre reactions. It's normal. Don't look at the result, but at the person and ask yourself, why is she like that? What could have happened for her to be so screwed up? And that's when you'll be able to intervene and will manage to help them. The popular image of human trafficking may conjure the faces of women and girls found in containers at Montreal's old port or tied to a bed in a sleazy motel in Belgrade. Mauchon and his fellow officers at the Vice Squad in Montreal are concerned about victims much closer to home, possibly the girl next door and the economic forces that keep them in bondage. Girls like Annie a private school graduate from an ordinary family who starts working at a strip club to pay her rent. When she tries to stop, however, her partner tells her to fork over 5000 that she doesn't have. He knows where her sister and mother live, he tells her. Or Linda, shuttled from her long gay Quebec home to a dance club by her pimp, not allowed to even look out the window. Or Cindy, who at 17 went straight 
from a group home to turning tricks in the private booth of a strip club, never keeping a cent of her earnings. In the majority of cases, Monchamp says, girls make their own way to strip clubs, massage parlors, and escort agencies, and return to their pimps at night with the money. Why do they do it? Why don't they leave? If you've had a gun at your head, if you've been raped by five guys, you know what your trafficker is capable of. You know what will happen if you don't bring the money back. That's human trafficking. And that's what's happening on our territory. And those are the people we're trying to help. From Lucy Baudouin in the 70s uh, to this story from the 2000s, it's, it's an old story. It's the oldest story. I, um, I won't read the whole piece. I'll continue with a, a, few, a few more um, interesting ac- excerpts. In Montreal, you can order a girl like a pizza, Monchamp says. You can choose her hair color, the color of her eyes, her measurements, her weight, and she will be delivered within a half hour. Last year, the U.S. State Department named Canada as a major destination for sex tourism. But it's the pimps making all the money, Monchamp says. A lot of it. Each girl brings in 400 to 2,000 a night. Most pimps have at least two girls who work six or seven days a week. The math is simple. 1,000 times 300 days is $600,000 a year. Now you see the images of guys driving huge caddies or BMWs, Range Rovers, Not all pimps are gang members, Monchamp says, but most gang members are pimps. It's the way they get their money. Buying a kilo of coke takes money, and it has to come from somewhere. There's armed robbery or fraud, but it's much easier to seduce a girl and break her, and she brings home a thousand a night for free. She does it all alone. The money comes in. Like many sex trade workers who are being exploited, police believe 80% of strippers, masseurs, and escorts have been exploited at one point in their lives, typically handling over 50 to 100% of their earnings to someone else. Cindy worked 12 hours a day, seven days a week, and didn't get to keep any of the money. Her pimp made sure she wasn't stealing any money either by routinely rifling through her handbag and strip-searching her when she came home. Once, Cindy rolled up some of the bills she had earned and put them in a condom that she inserted into her vagina. He found them. She took a particularly severe beating that night. After I started working at the club, he changed completely. It was like he had a split personality. If I was late, he beat me. If I didn't make enough money, he beat me. Any excuse would do. Montreal Police Commander Antonio Lantouni says nothing much has changed since he walked the beat, rounding up prostitutes 
considered a nuisance in the neighborhood. In the 80s and 90s, we didn't talk about human trafficking. But it was the same thing, the same girls. We would pick them up, take their photo, fingerprint them, and release them where they began. We were just doing stats. But if you don't do things differently, nothing will change. Based on two years of research, they say the typical client of a sex trade worker, uh, be he a construction worker, cop, or lawyer, is between 30 and 50, mid to high income, most often married, and wants something quick with a young girl on the way to or from work to do the things he can't do with his wife or to exert power over her. Invariably, he thinks he's helping her pay for her studies by working in the oldest profession in the world. The pimp, for his part, can be a lot like the glamorized version of somebody in a Snoop Dogg video. An extreme narcissist who's into flashy cars, a master manipulator who uses women as coin. Then again, he or she may be a lot more subtle. Joël Goshen Shalela, a.k.a. Sabrina, was an Outremont real estate broker by day, allegedly turned escort agent by night. She was arrested during the Grand Prix in June 2011 at a downtown hotel, where police found $1.3 million in cash. She has been charged with two counts of living off the avails of prostitution and possession of the proceeds of crime. Then there's Alain Jean-Pierre, a Montreal subway cop who recruited runaways on the job and had them working from residences in Brossard, Anjou, and Toronto, each one thinking she was his one true love. When police notified them of the others, they agreed to talk about their experience with Jean-Pierre. In 2007, he was sentenced to five years in jail. We're going to leave it there for today. As I said before, uh, this this will be a three-parter. We'll come back next time with part two, um, focusing on the subject of uh, the sex trade and human trafficking. If uh, you like the podcast, please give us a five-star rating on iTunes. And if you'd like to follow us on social media, um, follow us on Twitter at Teresa Lore, at T-H-E-R-E-S-A-A-L-L-O-R-E. There is also a Facebook page called Who Killed Teresa, the podcast. Typically, I post some visuals there um, and maybe a little uh, summary of the music used in each episode. And I'll do that with this one. 
And then finally, uh, the website, TheresaLore.com, www.theresaallore.com. You can go there where I'll post the um, some materials that I spoke of uh, today, including photos of uh, the victim, uh, uh, Lucy Baudouin, and, uh, and her killer, uh, Vincent Henri. That's it. That's our show. This has been Who Killed Teresa. I'm your host, John Allure. Have yourselves a great, great day. Maybe it's because I'm only starting. I think it won't take too long. Maybe it's because I can see you laughing. I think you've got it wrong. turn out like uh, someone else said, never mind. Well, I'm a big and bold and more than twice as old as all the cats I'd ever seen. I grew my hair and bought a suit of shiny white. It wasn't cream. I shook and shivered and danced and quivered and stood on the mountaintop. It all came from miles around and said, man, your music is really Cause I was a freak Oh, my throat was tired and warm My pretty face just looked out of place As they poured on the scores I wrote on yellow paper from a man who was king He said my boy will have some crazy scenes There weren't any scenes at all like he was talking about Yeah, he must have been the king of queens So they never get sung Well, it's law for the rich and want for the poor And there's another one to sing As it's die young and live much longer And spend your money and sit and wonder No one came from miles around Said, man, your music is really funky
Gym sessions and sweaty summer activities are back, which means more funky smells in your clothes because sweat leaves behind bacteria that causes those hard-to-remove odors. Clorox Fabric Sanitizer products are ready to zap the stink out of fabrics in your home by getting rid of 99.9% of odor-causing bacteria. Eliminate odors in every load or sanitize fabrics between washes with one of our Fabric Sanitizer products. Search Fabric Sanitizer at Clorox.com to learn more. When it counts, trust Clorox. Use as directed. We did it again. Verizon was just named America's most reliable network by Root Metrics for the 16th time in a row, proving once again that nobody builds networks like Verizon builds networks. That's why we're building 5G right. That's why there's only one best network Verizon. Best and most reliable based on Root Metrics reports from second half 2013 to first half 2021 of three operators on all network types combined, not specific to 5G networks.